0: the history of human exploration and the mysteries of the multiverse you're listening to are we there yet the radio show exploring space exploration hi i'm brendan byrne exploration is hardwired into our dna from early humans in sub-saharan africa to the apollo moonwalkers humans have always had a thirst for knowledge and the need to understand the world around them Andrew Rader is a SpaceX mission manager. He's one of the many New Age explorers now reaching out into the stars. He's also an historian and author of a new book, Beyond the Known, How Exploration Created the Modern World, and Will Take Us to the Stars. We'll speak with Rader about humanity's storied history exploring our world and the efforts to expand into our solar system. Then, are we living in the only version of this universe? We'll explore the idea of a multiverse with our panel of expert scientists this week on our segment, I'd Like to Know. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the latest space stories making headlines. SpaceX is about to launch a cargo capsule packed with supplies to the International Space Station, including a uh, frosty experiment.
1: This is for the people in my neighborhood. They help me through the day and make me feel good. This fuck's yeah. for
0: That's right, Budweiser is heading to space. Actually, an experiment from Bud's parent company, Anheuser-Busch. And it's not the first time. Researchers are studying how barley seeds malt in space. That's a critical step in extracting the sugars from grain for brewing, distilling, or even food production. Research from the experiment could help adapt the grain for long-duration spaceflight, for food and nutrients, not just for making a tasty space brew, or even altering the genes of the seed for better uses here on Earth. It's one of many experiments and supplies hitching a ride to the station on SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket, including a fleet of mice that will be used to study muscle degeneration in space. That's something scientists will need to figure out for long-duration spaceflight. And as of this recording, all is go for the Wednesday afternoon launch from Cape Canaveral. The capsule will spend about a month at the station before heading back to Earth with those completed experiments. Be sure to follow this show on Facebook. Just search Are We There Yet? podcast for a live stream of the launch. You can find these stories and more on our website, wmfe.org slash space. Or give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at Space Brendan. Humans are explorers. The new book, Beyond the Known, How Exploration Created the Modern World and Will Take Us to the Stars, chronicles our storied history as explorers from the Polynesians who conquered the Pacific to the quest for gold and quicker trade routes all the way to humanity's expansion into the cosmos. We're joined by author Andrew Rader. He's also an explorer himself, working as a mission manager for SpaceX. Rader begins the conversation explaining how early humans got the
1: start exploring the world we live on. What's interesting is humans are not native to earth where we all started in Africa and it's only our technology that enables us to be in places like North America and Northern Europe and Siberia and Australia. We got out to all those places using technology boats and things like that, but also, you know, the command of fire, animal skin, clothing, tools, shelters, all that is technology. And if we were just naked apes, we wouldn't be like there, we don't find gorillas and chimpanzees in Siberia. Because they wouldn't survive. And we survive only because we have technology. So the book really starts there. And the first chapter is just about the first human dispersal. So we all, humans left Africa about 100,000 years ago. And entered North America and got to Australia and crossed probably by boat. I think actually in the case of North America also by boat, not so much walking across the land bridge, uh, because it was giant glaciers, right? But but boats. Humans have been using boats for hundreds, over a hundred thousand years before we were any, even humans. Even Neanderthals had boats. So I think the first wave of human expansion was actually just to settle the entire world. So when European explorers set out and other Explorer set out, the world was entirely populated, except for Antarctica and a few islands out at sea, like just the ones that were really far away. But humans had already gotten to everywhere else, including almost all the islands in the Pacific. It's
0: fascinating. And I like how you break it down into kind of the, the first portion of human exploration. There's these motivating factors, right? There's There's something tangible, and we're looking for gold or trade routes or something like that. And then there was this pivot. And there's this line in the book that I keep coming back to when I was reading it, and it was, quote... It was no longer enough to merely find the world. Exploration now meant truly discovering it. Andrew Rader, when did that realization happen, and where did that take humanity from that point?
1: Yeah, it's it's a scientific age of exploration, right? Like, even when we talk about space exploration, this is super relevant to space exploration, because we have maps of the surface of Mars, (laughs) obviously in far more detail than, like, Columbus would have had of the Americas or whatever, right? Uh... And, you know, the astronauts on the space station circle around Earth. How do we justify calling that exploration? I had actually, I used to have a section in the introduction, they maybe cut it a lot, of talking about how we justify, you know, calling, sending rovers to Mars and even having like astronauts circle around Earth. How do we call that exploration? But it is because there's sort of macro exploration which means actually literally discovering new worlds and kind of filling the blank spots on maps but then there's micro exploration and and figuring out what's actually there because you know columbus discovered the americas in 1492 of course like there were already people living there (laughs) but um even if you accept that europeans created this connection between Europe and the Americas in the late 1400s and the 1500s. They didn't really know much about it. The Spanish didn't do any surveys of their gigantic empire that was 25 times, I think 27 times the size of Spain. So there was these group of scientists in the 1700s and 1800s who set out to discover what was actually there and complete comprehensive surveys. I actually learned about this one woman uh, later who I wish I'd written about who in the 1700s went to South America and created the first comprehensive biological, biological texts and kind of surveyed like all the types of insects that existed. And this tremendously increased our understanding of zoology, of biology she totally brought to the attention of the world what was really there. I mean uh, learning about hydrology and just how the world worked. like a classic example is Cook uh, looking going into the South Pacific to survey the transit of Venus to figure out how far Earth is from the Sun. So all these astrono- astronomical, experiments and the french had an experiment to climb the tallest mountain mount Chimborazo, which is actually the tallest mountain on earth if you measure it from the center of earth because earth bulges so it's taller than everest is from from the center of earth even though uh, everest is higher above the surface of earth at that point um and and just to measure whether earth is a sphere and whether it bulges at the equator and it does so It's exactly like the space race. If you look at the space race of the 1960s, what was the purpose of that? It's occupation more than exploration, right? You just want to plant the flag. Yeah, yeah. but, but But it is from the standpoint of developing technologies. See, this is one of the differences between science and engineering. I think it's actually totally legitimate to set out a goal. We're going to go to Pluto, whatever it is. And along the way, we're going to learn things, not necessarily, we're going to learn things about Pluto, but the goal is almost just to motivate ourselves to learn how to solve problems. And that's kind of an engineering challenge. This is like the thing I think about, like, what's the purpose of sending people to Mars? What's the purpose of having like a colony on Mars? I kind of think it's like just the best possible fodder for technical innovation that you could possibly have. It's, it's, it stimulates technological progress it creates the incentives for us to develop space technologies. You know, I always... So when I was a kid, when I was in high school, people would ask me what I wanted to do. And I always glibly replied that I wanted to invent Warp Drive because I was really interested in Star Trek. And I, I, I liked Star Trek, but I wanted I wanted to jump from star to star on with Warp Drive and meet all the aliens. And I kind of thought space, normal space, was kind of boring because you couldn't do that, couldn't meet the aliens. So what's the point, right? Uh, but I i guess zubrin's book really case for mars i had a complete revelation in the it was a complete revelation in when i was in high school complete reversal and i realized that progress is incremental and it's all about creating the right incentives and that's kind of the the moral of the book in a sense that we can't just sit around and wait for technological breakthroughs to come we have to challenge ourselves and by constantly trying to expand our horizons this creates the incentives that drive our technology. And this is how it's always worked throughout history. Our ancestors saw these horizons and challenged them and tried to do more. It's, it, they tried to venture into the unknown. They tried to do things that had never been done before. And as soon as you try to do things that had never been done before, you f- create these incentives that drive your technology, and you often solve a lot of problems that you didn't think you would solve by doing that. All these spin-offs and things like that. But like even like Hubble scanning technologies for... Curing cancer, they use that for scanning technologies because you could um, identify tumors using the same algorithms that they use to identify stars uh, by Hubble. Yeah, So there's all these challenges that you solve indirectly.
0: Now, can you give me the scoop? Have have you guys invented Warp Drive yet?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I actually, so I have a chapter on interstellar travel. I think I'm kind of a pessimist about interstellar travel because the whole chapter is talking about why this wouldn't work and why that wouldn't work and what about this? And I kind of walked walk through all the technologies from our current chemical rockets to antimatter, well, fusion rockets, fission. Actually, I think the best, the closest we could do is the Orion-type fission bombs, basically. But I think that's politically impractical. I am not convinced we will ever invent warp drive yet or, or I'm not convinced we will ever develop a method of traveling faster than the speed of light, even like wormholes or whatever it is, because even if it's technologically possible to demonstrate in a lab with an experiment or tachyons or some kind of like crazy particles or something like that, that is a very far cry from being able to build something that you could transport a spaceship through. I just don't, I think that's, it breaks the laws of physics as we understand them. Uh, That being said, I think there's a high probability if we don't destroy ourselves that we will colonize the entire galaxy because you could do that at very sublight speeds, like 5% of the speed of light in a few million years. Space is huge, but time is pretty long. And so even traveling at uh, speeds that we could achieve, you could settle the entire galaxy in a reasonable time frame. I mean, not a human lifetime, but reasonable time frame from the perspective of a species. So in the
0: book, you make the case for Mars, and you have in this conversation as well, and, and there's this passage where you talk about going into the future, and you say, quote, sustaining humanity on Earth is, of course, far more important than establishing it on other worlds, end quote. And, and and that's an argument that I hear from people. Why are we trying to colonize Mars? We should just try to make our Earth better here. But then you go on to write, quote, however, far from being in competition with this goal, human presence in space would significantly advance it. Andrew, you seem to be a little frustrated with our advancement in space exploration. Where do we need to go? At at this point, what's the immediate steps that humanity needs to take to make these
1: goals? Technological progress, as I said, is is all about generating the right incentives. And so if you have people living on Mars, you have the incentive to make it more efficient, less expensive, easier to transport large quantities of supplies, ideally on a regular basis, so faster, larger ships. And So that's what you need to do is is do what you can with what you have at the leading edge of technology. So even if you think it's difficult to do something, that's exactly why it's important to do it. So you do what you can with what you have, and then you create the incentives for the technology to follow. I, I truly believe that if we had never embarked on this age of exploration and connected the world we wouldn't have any incentive to have developed ocean going sailing ships and transatlantic ocean liners and uh, transcontinental air transportation. All these things come about because there's a need for them. It's not that they poof. Oh, we've got these technologies. What should we do with these technologies? No, it's what do we want to do? And therefore, what technologies will we develop to do that? Uh, Technology follows purpose, not the other way around. So you can't Invent a technology before doing the thing you want the technology for. You have to press your boundaries. You have to push your boundaries and try to do the thing with the bare minimum of technology, and then your technology will catch up with what you're trying to do. So I think that's exactly why going to Mars is super important. It's because It establishes the incentives that will drive our spacefaring technologies. I mean, we can't, like, basically, I used to think that, oh, we can just, like, sit around until we develop an interstellar colonizer ship and everyone can just get aboard the plank and we'll just, like, set off for Alpha Centauri, (laughs) right? Doesn't work that way at all. You have to, there's this intermediate step where you have to go into our solar system and actually develop our spacefaring technology by having the incentives that make it important to actually make more efficient and faster and bigger ships that travel through the solar system. So I think there's this huge gulf in science fiction. Actually, there was a gulf. I mean, I think the expanse to some extent does address this. I think that's one of the best science fiction shows because there sort of fills that gap of expansion into our solar system first. So I have a whole chapter about that and why that's important. I
0: want to ask you a bit about the people that are leading the charge on this exploration here in this point in time, Um, you know, in in this day and age, it's the private companies that are the ones that are making the most headway here. SpaceX, the company you work for. um, Other companies have also had these interplanetary ambitions. Is that who's going to actually make this happen? Is it going to be private entities or a single visionary that have this goal? Or will it be this international collaboration that people go uh, onto another planet?
1: I kind of think it's public-private partnerships, so it takes a little bit of both because they each have unique advantages. Private has more incentives in, in the fact that, you know, in a dearth of political leadership to actually do things in space you can have private individuals who are highly motivated to do things in space and they can bring their own kind of incentives and their own drive to do these things. So that's really important, but the government does provide a lot of technologies and a lot of backing and a lot of support and a lot of kind of intermediate missions and funding and uh, commercial opportunities and all these kinds of things that are also super important. So, you know, I think you can't say one or the other. It's kind of both. And interestingly, that's the way it's always been. So you have, in the history of exploration you have like the Dutch East India Company or the British East India Company or Columbus or Magellan these were all private individuals private ventures but they were backed by the government (laughs) every single one of them Uh, We're always, we're always like basically private individuals who are backed by the government in some way. So I think that's really important to have a partnership. And and when do you think the first humans will walk on Mars? I don't like to answer that question at all. (laughs) So I don't make predictions about specifics like that, like this such and such a year. But, um, you know, I think that we're going in the right direction these days, um, And I think uh, it will happen within our lifetime, knock on wood, but uh, yeah. So, so, um, but also just, you know, why it's important. I think it will definitely happen unless we kind of... One one thing I worry about, almost I think the biggest kind of scenario for end of the world, biggest catastrophe scenario is we lose our exploratory zeal and become too comfortable at home, especially entertaining ourselves. So we... Just decide to, instead of we're we're not going to explore space, we're just going to make movies about it. Or we're just going to watch Netflix and, you know. Um, And that's something that I'm, I'm not sure if that's a realistic fear or not. Because I do think that space... And other kind of exploratory ventures, and even to some extent, like just science in general, learning things is is a huge part of the human psyche. And I think it's a really important, if it fulfills a really important desire in humanity. I always wanted to be part of something, and I think space achieves that. I mean, Carl Sagan, I guess, in Blue Dot, really compared it to military in a sense, and, and actually so did von Braun, and he was like. Um, going to Mars would be the equivalent of a limited operation across uh, operational constraints that are well understood with a certain amount of ships. And you can totally compare it to that, too. And if you think about NASA's funding and the amount that we spend on space, it's 150th basically of our, what we spend on the military. You know, I'm not. People allocate funding based on a whole bunch of priorities. Fear is a bigger driver than uh, curiosity. I think. But you could imagine um, the if you had a similar level of, of support behind it, you can imagine the amazing things we could do in space. Obviously, that's a total pipe dream, which is why I think we have to do what we can with what we have. Um, we have to be realistic about goals and do things incrementally uh, and so not only is it important to drive technologies, but it's also important because it's more realistic to set limited goals to try to achieve them.
0: The book was a thrilling read. I really enjoyed it, and especially the historical context of things, but but finally,
1: Andrew Rader, what do you want folks to take away from this book? It's important to challenge ourselves. I think I have an epilogue, and it's kind of about that, and it's, it's about it's important to take risks. It's important to take risks, not just that are... Uh, foolhardy, but risks that are well understood. And uh, it's the whole thing about, I'm worried that, you know, we might become too comfortable being too safe. And you have to push the limits. And that's kind of inherently a risky business. And but it creates the incentives that have always dro- dri- driven our technology. I'm not sure if I'm worried about that or not, because it's always been a small group of individuals who have always kind of been on the leading edge of progress and kind of pulling us along with them. And I think that's still true. Uh, I think it probably always will be true. So, And I think something about exploration is buried deep in humanity's DNA. And I think that uh, it, that will continue to be true. So I don't know if that's a, a legitimate fear or not. But I think that taking risks and challenging ourselves is really important. I think it's important both on the individual level setting goals for yourself in life, and also on the civilizational level.
0: The book is Beyond the Known, How Exploration Created the Modern World, and Will Take Us to the Stars. We've been speaking with the author of that book and SpaceX mission manager, Andrew Rader. Andrew, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Brandon. Still to come, are we living in the only version of our universe? Could we be living in a multiverse? And is there any way to tell? Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Are we living in the only version of this universe? Well, that's a question that came from my colleague, and this show's editorial advisor, Matthew Petty. I posed Petty's question to our panel of experts on this week's segment, I'd Like to Know. To tackle the question of the multiverse, we're joined by Josh Caldwell, Jim Cooney, and Addie Dove, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Addie begins the conversation with a question of her own.
2: So, is he talking about uh, like the Avengers and the Marvel uh, cinematic universe and those multiverses, or uh, the Buffyverse, perhaps? All of them. Or, Do they exist? Okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> Short answer: No. Oh, oh. To the answer you were asking, and
3: the, the question you were over. asking, which was
0: <laughs> one, again, one right could
3: again. even one could even take some issue with the the phrasing of the question as the multiverse theory.
0: Okay. Right. So, well, so
2: yeah, you have to be careful about multiverse stuff, right? So multiverse, yeah, the idea dangerous. of multiverse is that there are many universes like our own. Maybe in these other universes, there are different fundamental constants, et cetera, et cetera. There's actually pretty good reason to believe these things do exist. Uh, pretty strong theoretical arguments that they kind of have to exist if some of the theoretical framework that we have in cosmology is true. Like what? Like inflation? Have you ever heard of inflation? Uh, I've heard of mon- monetary inflation, <laughs> right?
0: A balloon, bounce house inflation,
2: yeah, uh, right. Uh, cosmological, cosmological. Uh, uh, this is the idea that in the first fraction of a second, first like ten to the minus thirtieth of a second of the universe, the universe expanded at a humongous rate. Obviously, the universe is currently still. Ex- I say obviously, but the universe <laughs> is currently expanding. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this, You're like thinking about your waistline, <laughs> <laughs> Josh. This uh, really fast expansion in the early universe and. One of the consequences of that uh, idea is that there should be some uni- parts of the universe that ex- keep expanding, some that stop expanding, and that our observable universe is a little part that stopped expanding, stopped inflating. I guess is the better word. And so there should be an in- large number of these that are independent little regions. Anyway, so you mix qu- this is this They're is sort of bubble it, off it each gets weird. other. Yeah, it's just a weird technical thing. But quantum mechanics and inflation put together means you've got to have. Of the multiverse. You always have to be c- careful when you're mixing quantum mechanics. with <sighs> yes. Things. yes, don't drive. You, you do. Yeah, don't <laughs> yes. drive and mix quantum mechanics. <laughs> Unfortunately, you have to mix quantum Ooh. mechanics with everything because
0: that's <laughs> how it's everything mixed works. Into everything.
2: <laughs> but here's the trouble: is testing it right again. It always comes down to test. You have to, in order to believe a thing, in order for a theory to actually be a scientific theory, a hypothesis to be scientific, it needs to be testable, testable. falsifiable. Multiverse things aren't. Right. Mm. So yeah. it seems like they should exist based on our theories, but. They're outside of our observable universe or or maybe physically outside, maybe even yeah. philosophically outside. But we can't test if they're there. And if we can't test if they're there, it's just kind
0: of philosophical speculation. Mm-hmm. You say you need to test this. I mean, are there people that are trying to figure out ways to test this? It's certainly a thing that serious scientists think about. Like, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there
2: are papers written. You go to the scientific journals, you can find things written about that. We shouldn't spend too much of our time doing that because we can't. I haven't seen any reasonable uh, tests for. Proposed. Just proposed. Even to proposed. Really. Um, some, some versions of the multiverse idea have some possible ways to test them, and they have failed those tests. Uh, but. <laughs> The general idea of a multiverse essentially untestable. And
3: and there are these multiple versions about sort of how they are and how connected or not they are to our universe. And some of them are very strongly connected to string theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, And string theory itself has problems with – Falsifiability or what testing. a string theory. Oh boy, what is string theory? <laughs> so, string theory tries to reconcile quantum mechanics with some of these things that you know Jim was saying you can't make, got to be careful with how you mix quantum mechanics. Uh, but it's a very elaborate, complicated mathematical explanation for the fundamental structure of stuff in our universe. Uh, and it gets rid of problems where you have points because points have no size, so you replace those with a loop, mm-hmm. for example, a string which does have a size, but super complicated. And it posits that our universe may be 10 or 11 dimensions instead of four, three space plus time. So that's just one of the flavors okay. of multiverse. Theories connect to that. And there are, at least in, principles, in principle, ways to test string theory. So if that became validated.
2: Right. But that's not the only way to have, you know. That's right. Even just yeah. general quantum mechanics, when you think about how, how quantum physics works, like when you do an experiment, you get a result. But you might have gotten a different result, and quantum mechanics sometimes supposes that both results actually happened, and that there were there are <laughs> right. now parallel universes in which wow. this result and that result happened. And right, uh, it's hard to test against you know to test these things. So it's fun to think about, but Just don't take it too seriously. To yeah, this point. it's a fun philosophical thing for scientists and Joe Public to think about, but and, let's not take it too seriously, Matt. And for movie makers, I mean, yeah, there's been a lot see. of oh, movies yeah, yeah, yeah. that have. Have played it's on that idea. Kind of like
3: a idea. crutch,
0: though, right, for moviemakers well, right and storytelling.
3: Well, sometimes I mean, there have been some movies that have taken the idea of what Jim was just saying—that there's this branching, this infinite branching of realities—and sort of exploring, oh, if this slight quantum thing had happened slightly differently, then you travel off in this other universe. Sliding doors is the only one I'm thinking of right now with Gwyneth mm-hmm. Paltrow. Where sort That's of like
2: definitely the first one that usually comes to mind.
3: Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it is a lot of fun to think about, mm-hmm. and it's. Uh, As Jim said, it's a serious topic, Yeah, but it's frustrating. How do I actually test it, find out if it's real? You might end
2: up with Spider-Pig. You might end up with (laughs) Spider-Man.
3: But
0: you're telling me that there is not a... Evil Brendan Byrne in another universe that doesn't have a beard and there like might a mustache. We should never we are tell you that. We are not telling you that. <laughs> we <laughs> we could are never you that. well, maybe.
2: We just no. don't know any way to test for. Seriously, it. Seriously, if many of the versions of multi the multiverse theory are true, then there absolutely is that right. And right. If the universe <laughs> is infinitely large. Then there really Every are infinitely exists. many versions of this thing happening
0: right now with. You evil or good, or well, uh, Brendan uh,
3: is good across
0: all. Universes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that could be a law Thank of nature. You, you never know. Uh, we've been speaking with Jim Cooney, Josh calwell and Addie Dove. They are the hosts of the Walk About the Galaxy podcast and planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida. Thank you all for being here. you be happy to be here. Thanks. Find it wherever you get this show, or you can visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you've got a question for our segment, I'd like to know, send it in. Shoot me an email. Are We There Yet at WMFE.org, or find us on social media and drop your question there. Look for us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Are We There Yet podcast. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty, production assistance from Elizabeth Gonder. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. You can find more space news online at WMFE.org/slash space. Never miss a show and get bonus content and interviews delivered straight to your phone or smart speaker. Subscribe to the Are We There Yet podcast on iTunes, NPR1, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next time, I'm Brendan
1: Byrne. Thanks for listening.